We're going to start with a bit of a competition. Up for a competition? Yeah? Um, anyone here like doing jigsaw puzzles? Oh, a few of you. I, I hate jigsaw puzzles. But uh, for those who like jigsaw puzzles, today could be your lucky day. Um, uh, I've got a, a couple of puzzles with me. And um, for the first two people who volunteer in a moment, I'd like you to take uh, a puzzle away uh, and complete it. And the first one to complete it, not while I'm preaching, I hasten to add. Uh, you'd have to do it in your own time later. And send me a picture of the finished puzzle. The first one uh, to do it, uh, you get a prize uh, funded by myself. So it's going to be very lavish. So, two volunteers. First two hands I see. Okay, I see Isaiah Meller. Do I see another volunteer? There were loads of people who enjoyed puzzles. Anyone else? Uh, okay, come on then. You two, come up to the front. Yeah, yeah, I saw your hand. Come up, come up, come up. Uh, now, how confident are you both feeling? You think, who's going to be first out of you, do you reckon? You're, you're going to win it? How confident are you? Yeah. yeah. You, you, you. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, how confident are you you're going to complete this puzzle really quickly? 10 being really confident. 6, okay. Oh. <laughs> okay, so they're both reasonably confident. We haven't got loads of time here. So, um, are you ready? Put your hands out. Uh, there's your puzzle. And there's your puzzle. Now, uh, are you feeling as confident now as you were before? No. Well, why aren't you feeling so confident? It's going to take ages. Any other reasons? Yeah, uh, yeah there's no picture. Uh, normally, a puzzle would come in a box and you would know what you are actually doing. You haven't got a clue what those puzzles are of. So, uh, back to your seats. Uh, enjoy. Um, off you go. If I'm going to provide a prize, well, I want to make it a bit tricky and tough for them. Now, uh, well, yeah, you'll have to wait and see. It, the, the whole point is, the whole point is, it's almost impossible to do. Now, you, you, you've said you're good at this, so you might be able to do it, but it's almost impossible to do if you don't know what picture you are working to. And that is very much the thinking behind the series we are doing this term. You see, we live at a crazy time in history where everything is being shaken up. But for all its encouragement to pursue freedom and just go away and be who you want to be and live how you want to live, I think it's fair to say our culture is producing a whole lot of confusion, brokenness and pain. And I think a big part of the problem is we don't have a picture or a frame of reference that shows us the way forward. And so what we're doing in this series is going back to the very beginning and trying to listen to the words of the person who designed everything in the first place. We're trying to put to one side all of our preconceived ideas of how things should be in order to see with fresh eyes the blueprint that God has provided for how life should be lived to the full. Now, all that being said, uh, this morning we are going to be talking about marriage. Now, looking around the room, uh, those who are married are in the minority here. 
Uh, and so why spend a morning talking about marriage? I mean, I've already lost half or more than half the room. Uh, people nodding frantically, no, I don't want to listen to this. Why is it worth everyone in the room listening to a talk on marriage? Because I think it is worth uh, all of our time to look at it. Well, here's why. As a church, we believe the lived experience of any of us is important to all of us. And as a church, we are a family together and want to do our best to care and support and walk with one another. We want to be a church where everyone flourishes, including the minority in the room who are married. Now, next time, uh, we're going to flip things and look at the whole subject of singleness. And when we do that, we'll be appealing to those who are married in the room to pay full attention because we want to support one another and stand with one another and care for one another, walk alongside one another, understand the life experiences of those who are different to us. But right now, we're going to be talking about marriage, which I think is going to be a challenge for all of us. You see, most of us have lived through the full-scale cultural backlash against the traditional view of a man and a woman in a lifelong covenant relationship. And with the ongoing redefinition in our society of what marriage is, I think it's fair to say we are becoming more and more confused as to what it is actually for. We've kind of lost sight of the whole point of getting married in the first place. And then, on top of that, there's the very real pain that some of us carry around this subject, whether it's the pain of desperately wanting to be married or the equal pain of being stuck in a marriage that isn't what we hoped it would be. Or there's the trauma of experiencing a marriage completely implode. Uh, I guess the majority of us have got first-hand experience of this, whether it's our own marriage or our parents' marriage or, or the marriages of other close family members and friends. Many of us will have experience of this. In fact, with so much confusion and pain surrounding marriage right now, I do think it's a legitimate question to ask, why on earth get married at all? I mean, why in the world would anyone in their right mind take that kind of a risk? And really, that's the question I want us to try and answer this morning as sensitively as we can. And so, let's go back to the very beginning. Let's look at how the story of the Bible begins, because I think as we go there, we're going to find it's incredibly, incredibly instructive for us. Right at the end of uh, Genesis chapter 2, we read about the first wedding of all time. It's the wedding between Adam and Eve, and uh, rather uniquely, God himself steps in and officiates that first wedding, and he speaks over Adam and Eve and says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and free rent 
and someone to do his laundry for him, and his PlayStation, in theory, and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now, as I say, this is the first time we read about marriage in the whole Bible, and it's like God provides this running commentary of the point of it all that acts as a blueprint or a picture for all future marriages. He's saying, listen up, I want you to pay attention to this. This marriage right here isn't a one-off. It is a template for every subsequent marriage. I mean, if you think about it, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense otherwise. It says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother. Think about it. Adam didn't have a father or mother. And he goes on and is joined to his wife. I mean, Eve didn't have any other options. But it's written in such a way as to make the reader slow down and take notice. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now, you hear that, and maybe you're thinking, well, wait a minute, this doesn't actually explain why. Well, why does a man leave his father and mother to get married? What is it all for? Well, if that's your question, uh, I'm about to answer it. And to answer it, we need to rewind, actually, to the story before this story. Uh, if you remember, uh, Genesis chapter 1 tells the story of creation from 30,000 feet. We, we see the kind of uh, big overarching picture. God speaks and the whole world is born. God shapes the land and the sea. He fills the sky with birds. He floods the sea with fish. He populates the land with living creatures. And at the very apex the climactic moment in the whole narrative, he creates a human to take care of his world. So that's the big picture. And then uh, in Genesis 2, uh, the writer zooms in and creates a picture of a garden called Eden and describes the first human called Adam. Verse 7, then the Lord God, God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He, he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. Verse 15, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. And so the whole story opens with Adam, the proto-human, alone with God in paradise. Can you imagine a better life? I mean, for, for those slightly introverted who didn't particularly enjoy the noise and chaos earlier on, I mean, this sounds like bliss, doesn't it? Can you imagine a better life? Well, actually, God could. The next line reveals this whole setup certainly was not ideal. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. 
Now you get to this verse, and if you've read the story up until now, you see it is quite jarring when read in the context of all that has gone before. You see, the refrain all the way through chapter 1 is God saw that it was good. God created the land and the sea, and God saw that it was good. God created plants and trees and vegetation, and God saw that it was good. God created the sun, the moon, the stars, and God saw that it was good. But right after God created Adam, he says it is not good for Adam to be alone. Now, why is it not good? Well, I think there are two main problems here. First of all, Adam is created in the image of God. And we know that God has eternally existed in this web of life-giving relationships, which means that Adam, created in the image of God, was designed for relationships. And so, his aloneness is not a good thing. Second problem here is one of simple logistics. Remember, Adam is called to take care of the garden, but it's really not a garden like yours or mine. It it was approaching the size of an entire continent, thousands of square miles, untamed and teeming with raw potential. I mean, let's face it, even if you like gardening, that is way too much for one person to do. He desperately needs help. And so, there's this calling on Adam's life, but he cannot do it alone. And I think it's as a result of those two problems that we're told that God created woman as a helper suitable for him, uh, and then brings Eve to Adam and says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And so, bearing all of that in mind, what is the point of marriage? What's the purpose of it all? Well, I think we see four main reasons here. Number one, friendship. What's what's the point of marriage? Friendship. We've seen, haven't we, how we were made, we were created in God's image, which means we're called to image God or mirror God to the world around us. But that is a problem for Adam because he's alone. And as I've already said, God exists in a web of relationships. Earlier on in the story, remember how God says, let us, plural, let us make human beings in our image. Who is he talking to? Uh, Yeah, Uh, himself, Uh, Jesus, the Son, the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus later on in the Bible uh, explains that to us. He talks about God as the Father and in another place as the Son, in another place as the Spirit. But right here at the beginning, at this point in the story, all we know is that God isn't alone. He is in some way plural. And if God isn't alone, then why should Adam be? Now, of course, that doesn't mean you have got to get married. There are 
plenty of other ways to live in community with others. Jesus himself modeled this pretty magnificently as a single guy. He surely proved without question that it is possible to live an amazingly fulfilled and rich relational life without being married. So, you don't have to get married in order to get community. That being said, just by way of a quick aside, the challenge that I want to give to all the married people in the room is please, please, please open up your homes. In fact, not just your homes, open up your lives to those who aren't married. Don't just hang out with yourselves or with other couples. Be genuine family for those who haven't got family of their own. That being said, there is still something particularly profound about the marriage relationship. Uh, In the wedding ceremony, God says the two are united into one, or as other translations put it, they become one flesh. The whole sense here is of being fused together at the very deepest level. Interestingly, there is an ancient Hebrew prayer that uses the exact same word for God himself. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so God himself is fused together at the deepest level. And I think the intention is that in marriage, we are to catch glimpses and hints and shadows of that kind of oneness. You know, that's one of the main reasons why God created marriage, for you to walk through life with the person you enjoy, with your spouse as the primary relationship in your life, the one who knows you better than anyone else. So, what's the point of marriage? Well, first of all, friendship. Secondly, and you'll need to bear with me on this one, uh, I'm speaking metaphorically here, but the second purpose for marriage is gardening. I hate gardening. I really hate gardening. In preparation for this talk, I did some on Monday, and my hatred grew more intense as the day wore on. But I think the second purpose for marriage is gardening, uh, metaphorically speaking. Now, uh, as we've seen, God placed Adam in the garden to tend and to watch over it. That was a core part of the original job description for human beings. And in the whole creation account, in the previous chapter in Genesis, we see how God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Let's take a moment to just flesh this out a bit. I think the whole sense here is one of actively partnering with God in taking the world somewhere. 
We're not intended to exploit or harm the earth. We're to, in some way, harness the raw materials that make up the planet and creatively make something beautiful out of it all. Nowadays, we have a term for that. We call it work. And I think a lot of people imagine that work is part of the curse that came in after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. But actually, nothing could be further from the truth. Toil is part of the curse. Thorns in the ground are part of the curse. Sweat and blood and the need for paracetamol are part of the curse. But work is an integral part of God's original plan for His good creation. We were created to work, but not just any kind of work. We're called to work for human flourishing. We are to partner with God to make a garden-like world in which humans are able to thrive and flourish and prosper, and a context where God Himself can walk with His people effectively in the cool of the day. And so, contrary to the mantra of the day, we don't work to live. In God's economy, we live to work. I believe there is a calling on every single one of us to partner with God in our corner of the garden and in some way to work for human flourishing. That includes mechanics and musicians and medics and meteorologists and mortgage brokers and stay-at-home mums. In other words, we need the full spectrum of vocations and not just those beginning with M. All other letters of the alphabet are relevant as well, but we need every human being on the planet doing what God has gifted them to do. If you like, we all need our own gardening project, a sense of this is what I was put on earth to do, that this is the thing I'm good at, this is what I was made for, this is my Eden, my corner of the earth to reign over and cultivate in some way. All of this is true for us as individuals, and I believe it's also true for us in our marriages. You see, getting married is not the end goal. Uh, If the whole point of your marriage is simply your marriage, it will probably end up collapsing in on itself. Marriage is really a means to another end. It exists for something larger than itself. It exists for friendship, absolutely, but also to partner with God in a spot of gardening. It's like there is work for you to do together, which is what we see in the beginning, isn't it? Adam was called by God to take care of Eden, but it was too much work for him to manage all by himself. That's why God created Eve. He says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now look, and we're already, that word helper 
is triggering a number of responses in a number of people in the room. I can see from up here the reaction. What's that all about? I'm aware that kind of sounds a bit derogatory, doesn't it? Like, God made Adam his own personal assistant. But we're going to trust me on this. It is really not that way at all. Perhaps a truer translation would be partner. One who comes alongside to achieve a goal. Uh, You see, the exact same word is used for God himself in the Psalms. The psalmist sings, the Lord is with me, he is my helper. And so, if this term is used to refer to God, it really can't be derogatory. Uh, Elsewhere, actually, it's used uh, of military reinforcements that are called in to prevent an army being crushed and overwhelmed and defeated. Uh, And so, a helper isn't like an employee who works for you and you can just kind of boss around. No, a helper is very much an equal I think that's what God is getting at when he says he's going to make a helper suitable for Adam. It is someone on the same level. It is someone you love and respect. The whole picture here is of someone who comes alongside as a partner in a project or as an ally in a war. Listen, all of us actually need that kind of a helper or to put it another way, we all desperately need help. And so, just to quickly address uh, all the single women in the room. As I've said, uh, the point of this talk isn't to say, you need to go and get married, that, that's not the thrust of this. But if you're looking to get married, whatever you do, do not marry a man who doesn't have a gardening project. No matter how charming or romantic or handsome or spontaneous or just plain wealthy he is, if he isn't a gardener, if he isn't doing anything with his life that matters to God's kingdom, how on earth are you intended to partner with him? If he isn't going anywhere, how will you follow him? If his life is just about day-to-day kind of pleasures and his PlayStation, how will you entrust your future and your calling to him? And similarly, for all the single men in the room, again, the point isn't you need to go and get married, but if you're looking to get married, please do not marry a woman who doesn't want to be your partner in life. Now, again, just to underline This doesn't mean your personal assistant. Uh, I'm in no way suggesting that wives need to stay at home, just chained to the kitchen sink all day and not pursue a career. I'm not saying any of that. What, What I'm saying is, don't marry a woman who doesn't want to come alongside you in a shared life calling. No matter how smart or funny or sexy or interesting she is, If she doesn't want to help you in kingdom work, how will your marriage ever be about more than your marriage? If she doesn't want to follow God's call on your marriage, how will you ever dream and try and fail and still persevere and hopefully at points succeed? 
with her. Now look, feel free to disagree and send me emails and grab me at the end if you want, but as I read this text, what I see is the husband called to lead, not boss around, not domineer, but to take responsibility in stepping out with faith. And I see the wife called to be his partner, very much his equal, right there at his side and with him to go and do what God has called them to do together. And if you ignore that, and you get into a marriage with little or no sense of calling, or you're in a marriage, and over time you you just lose your bearings and lose sight of that, then I think it's only a matter of time before you start thinking, well, this is boring. Is anyone else a little more attractive, more fun, more interesting, more this, that, or the other? I think it's just inevitable because it's implanted into your humanness. You'll end up getting restless without a shared gardening project. You see, one of the reasons why God made marriage in the beginning was there was a garden that needed work, and nothing has changed. Sure, we don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore, but one of the reasons why God created marriage was for two people to link arms and shoulder to shoulder, go and cultivate their part of the world together. Third purpose in marriage, this one and the fourth one, much quicker. Uh, Third one, largely quicker because we looked at it uh, uh, last time or the time before. Uh, Third purpose is sex. Last line of the story in verse 25 tells us that the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Now, This right here is the very first love story in the whole Bible. They were friends, yes, and they were partners as well, but undeniably they were also lovers. And as we saw a few weeks back, God created the human body, all of the human body, and he said it was very good. Not one part of it is by accident. I don't think God kind of looked down at Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and thought, what are you doing? I didn't intend that to happen. No, it's God's design. Your sexuality is part of your humanity. But not only did God create your sexuality, he created marriage as the context for you to express your sexuality with joy and delight and love, and faithfulness, and security, and safety, and trust, and growing intimacy. More than that, he created sex as the glue, as the bonding agent to help your marriage stay close and healthy for you to remain as one flesh. Now, once again, let me just reiterate This doesn't mean you have got to get married. If you're single, this is important, your desire for sex is not the same as your need for food or drink. You do not have to get married and have sex in order to live a happy, fulfilled life. But 
if secretly you want to get married in order to have sex, that's not a bad thing. It's not necessarily a shallow or a selfish thing. As long as it's not the only reason you want to get married, because as we're saying, sex is one of the reasons God created marriage in the beginning. Fourth reason is for family. Early on in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. It's the very first command in the Bible, and it is not a negative one, like, thou shalt not. Now, it's an unbelievably positive command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And without wishing to sound crass, I don't think it's a stretch to interpret this, at least in part, as have sex and make babies. In fact, make a lot of babies, which, once again, does not mean that if you're not married or having sex or producing children, that you can't lead a fulfilled life or that you're some kind of second-class citizen. Because I think we'd all have to agree, Jesus, once again, managed to achieve quite a lot as a single guy without kids. But from the very beginning, we see that God's heavily into the whole idea of family. God's blueprint is for family to be the building block of society as a whole, which is why throughout the whole Bible, God is called Father, uh, and we are called His sons and daughters. And in the church, we're supposed to be brothers and sisters to one another. Family is right at the very heart of God's vision for the world. And the problem is, we live in a culture that can err on one of two sides here. One camp doesn't want kids at all. Sex, sure. Marriage, maybe. Family, no way. Which perhaps explains why approximately one in five of all pregnancies in the UK ends in abortion and why there are 1.7 million single-parent families in the UK right now, with one in four children living with just one parent. And I want to tread ever so sensitively here, because I know there are people in the room for whom this is incredibly painful, and it's not your choice. You feel powerless to do anything about this. But my point is simply that this is very much the culture that we live in. This is normal in the world around us, and it is so very far from God's heart, from God's plan, from God's intention. But there's also another camp which is very much at the other end of the spectrum. It's like we emphasize family so much that it becomes this weird kind of idol. Uh, and young couples can't walk three feet without someone asking them, well, when are you going to have kids then? And all the time, the subliminal message is, if you don't have kids, then you don't belong or you are not in the club. I think the root of the problem is, when people don't find life in God, they start looking for it elsewhere. And family is a natural place to start. Before you know it, kids become gods 
and parenting becomes like a religion. We've all seen it, haven't we? Parents end up existing to make their children happy, and all too often the marriage ends up being sacrificed on the altar of child-centered parenting. I'd humbly suggest that's not what God had in mind either. Listen, family exists to spread God's rule over the earth. And if we're going to fill the earth and govern it, it's going to take more than one man, more than one marriage, more than one family. It's going to take all of us in the human race. Now, for fear of repeating myself, once again, this does not mean that everybody needs to get married, or for that matter, that all married couples need to have kids. I mean, some can't, and there are plenty of other ways to live out that calling, uh, adoption being one of them. But it does mean that family is one of the reasons why God created marriage. So there you have it. That is my running, gasping attempt to explain the point of it all. That, if you like, is the picture. That is the blueprint. That, that's the reason you perhaps one day walk down the aisle, stand up in front of all your family and friends, and effectively give your life away to another human being as long as you both shall live. I really do hope I've, I've helped you see that marriage is about so much more than just marriage. It's about friendship. It's about gardening. It's about sex. It's about family. I, I want you to see that there is a purpose that goes way beyond just you and your happiness. Uh, Adam and Eve weren't made merely to sit endlessly in coffee shops staring into each other's eyes, that they weren't made to while away the hours in dinner parties with other married couples, that they weren't commissioned to fill their children's lives with countless after-school clubs to keep them from getting bored. They were made to do life together, to work and sweat and bleed and sacrifice and persevere for the sake of a better world, to make love whenever they wanted in order to be fruitful and increase in number, by God's grace creating more gardeners to continue to work in God's good world. That's the design. That's the purpose. But the problem is, uh, you may have noticed, we don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore, do we? Which is why everything I've shared this morning doesn't just bring joy and hope, but very real pain and tears. Because let's be honest, our experience doesn't always match up to this. And so, very, very quickly... Two swift pieces of advice before I finish. First of all, if your marriage is nothing like what I've just been describing, under no circumstances am I advocating walking out on your husband or wife. In fact, quite the opposite. I want to encourage you to work this stuff through together. 
please do not give up on your relationship. Invest all you can in making it all God wants it to be. And I want to plead with you not to walk this path alone. Where you are stuck, where you're frustrated, where you feel like you could do with some help, please be quick to ask for help. As I said at the beginning, we're a community that want to walk with one another through life. Please ask for help whenever, wherever you need it. Second thing to say, if you're desperate to get married but are frustrated because you haven't yet found the one, my advice to you is you're never going to because they do not exist. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, in his absolutely superb book on marriage, he puts it like this, every other person on the planet is a bad match for you. It's just that hopefully you marry someone who is less of a bad match for you than all the other people. Uh, So, a pretty high view of marriage right there. You know, some of you perhaps need to lower the bar a bit. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying settle for someone who isn't a suitable partner, but you do need to wake up to the fact that no one out there is going to be perfect for you, just as shock horror you are absolutely not going to be perfect for anyone else either. In fact, a lot of the time, I think we tend to focus on the wrong person. Uh, It's not so much whether they can be a good friend for me as whether I can be a good friend for them. And one is very important that they can partner with me and help fulfill God's call on my life I think it's even more important that I am a good partner in helping fulfill God's call on their life. And ultimately, it's not whether they can satisfy all of my sexual desires and then maybe one day bring up all my children for me so I can go and do other things. It's more a case of whether I am willing to sacrificially give myself to them And perhaps one day, if God blesses us with children, aim to be the very best parent I can be.